um, I'm actually mocking the identity of baseball fans. Um, but part of the problem, the reason I wasn't attracted to baseball is because I found it to be boring. And I remember as a kid, uh, they'd put me out in left field, and I would just, I'd sit on the grass, and I would just play with the grass in baseball. Because I'm like, first of all, we're seven. No one's hitting it to left field. Uh, second of all, it's super boring out here because kids can't even hit things. We're not playing t-ball anymore. And, and the older I, I, I became, I just thought, maybe I'll try out baseball. Maybe it'll stick and I'll like it. I remember I tried out for the competitive club team in town and maybe more out of sympathy than anything else, they let me um, on it, but I never played. I never played. I think I played in left field for like one game, um, but they're like, why is that 13-year-old sitting down on the grass in a baseball game? And so they, they put me back in the bench, but I remember one time, specifically one game, it's burned into my mind. Um, I know where the sun was in the sky because the third base player got hurt. I don't know how you get hurt playing third base, but he got hurt. Um, and I'm literally like, I swear the coach did one of those awkward things where he looks at the bench and he like, looks like, is there anybody else right now who could go into this game? And there wasn't. So I went out to play third base and the only thing I'm saying is don't screw this up. Don't screw this up. Don't screw this up. And so, so there, there's runners on first and second. If you're a baseball fan, that's helpful. Um, and I lined up in the hole. Is the hole, does the third baseman play in the hole or is that a phrase I'm making up? I lined up in the place I should be lining up. Could have been a hole, could have not been a hole. Um, and I sat there, or st I stood there, because I wasn't sitting, I learned that was bad. Uh, and, I, and I waited and the, the batter hit this hard ground ball and it like one hopped like 15 feet in front of me and I was just like, and like looked at my glove and I had the ball in my hand and it was a miracle. And I was like, holy cow, I just did something really good. And I remember like, kind of like jumping and like fist pumping and just like, I was rejoicing and I was celebrating. And I looked to my coach expecting like him to run out and embrace me and throw like trophies into my arms. And he's just yelling at me, something like tag the base. Tag the base. And while I was rejoicing, the runner from second just ran to third and stood there. Um, and I realized that catching the ball was not sufficient enough to make the play, nor even to make me a baseball player. I had done part of what was necessary, but I hadn't done all of it. And I just felt foolish. And I looked foolish. And in the book of Romans, Paul has been talking about this thing called salvation through faith alone. And the gospel that Paul gives, the gospel that the, gospel that the Bible gives is this. It's that God sent his son to a broken humanity to die on a cross for their sins, for our sins. And if we are to believe in Jesus, who died our death and paid our penalty for our sins, we would then earn Christ's life. But Paul knows that oftentimes we approach Christianity and we approach life like I play baseball. We see faith, we see grace, we see forgiveness, and we can dance around. We'll be happy about it, and we'll beat our chest, and we'll show to the world, we'll be like, yeah, I caught the ball. Yeah, I believe. But here's the thing. Being saved by grace alone isn't sufficient to live as a Christian any more than catching the ball made me a baseball player. I want you to hear what I'm saying here. I'm saying that salvation is sufficient for the Christian life. It qualifies you. It equips you. It enables you. But 
Salvation is not sufficient as the Christian life. The Christian life is not only once you were saved, once you caught the ball, now celebrate. There's more to be done. Those who are changed by the grace of God live a changed life. That's the way it goes. And Paul's going to emphasize um, this tonight. And what we're going to see tonight is this, is that he's been promoting this knowledge of salvation, this knowledge of the gospel. And what Paul is saying in Romans 6, 1 through 14 is this, knowledge of the gospel must manifest itself. It must show itself as the master of the believer. Tonight we're going to look uh, at three things we must know about our faith, know about the gospel, know about salvation by faith alone in order to live rightly, okay? We're moving from catching the ball to making the play. So um, it's a right response. We want that, but we know we need God's help to do it. So let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to aid us as we look at this text. Um, Lord, we thank you that there are more sports than just baseball. Um, We thank you. Uh, that you have given us a good word in Romans. You've portrayed to us a beautiful salvation, a salvation which we could not dream up of a perfect God coming and dying to make the ungodly godly, to declare the guilty innocent, to proclaim the unrighteous righteous, but not according to our own goodness, but according to the goodness of your perfect Son. And Lord, I thank you that through your Holy Spirit, you may quicken our hearts to believe that and to claim that salvation as our own. But God, I pray that merely receiving that salvation is not the defining life of the Christian. I pray that as we know the gospel truly, that we may apply it perfectly in our life. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, Paul is really going to respond to a problem here. We've seen him doing this throughout the the first five chapters of Romans. He's assuming questions. He's assuming um, issues the crowd might take with his logic, and he's going to tackle a problem which is rampant in our culture today. Um, Your parents' generation, the baby boomer generation, grew up with this issue of legalism. We grow up in a generation which is the opposite of that. The, the fancy word is antinomism. There is no laws. And really, culture just calls it self-expression. You should do what you want to do. When you want to do it, where you want to do it. That's what you should do. Be yourself. You is the best you can be. And Paul has just finished talking about what, what we must do to be saved. And to follow Paul's logic in a very detailed outline is this. Believe, believe, believe. That's what you must do. Believe that Christ died for you. Believe that Christ has bore your penalty. And he ends with this beautiful phrase that we looked at last week in 5 verse 20 where he says this, Now the law came to increase the trespass. Trespass is sin. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now here's the thing about the writers of the New Testament. They wrote, carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is perfectly God's word. But it was also written by humans. And those humans, carried along by God, writing exactly what God wanted to write, knew how humans would receive this. And Paul knows, when he's promoting that justification by faith alone, that we have a tendency. He knows what we'll want to do with that. 
and he answers that thought, which you may or may not be thinking right now, but that you will have had. He answers that thought in Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? In light of salvation by faith alone, where all we do is believe to be counted righteous, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? This logic works right. It works rightly, right? We just saw Jesus is say, or Paul is saying that when sin increased, grace increased all the more. Grace is a good thing. We Christians, we love grace. Shouldn't we want to sin all the more to make grace look more pretty? That's a pretty audacious thing to, to ask, isn't it? That's like give them an inch and they take like a marathon. Okay, that's more than a mile that we're taking here. But in subtle ways, we think this all the time. On the bold end of the spectrum, I've met with college students just like you who willingly choose to sin because they say to your face, Jesus died for my sin. It no longer bears a penalty on me. I can continue to sin. They caught the ball. That was sufficient for them. The problem was I don't think they caught the ball they thought they were hoping for. And they say, we have grace. Why do I need to live different? Jesus assured me of a salvation. And I know for most of us, we might not be that bold, but this, this uh, idea that we should be able to sin more because the gospel's given us grace manifests itself in apathy towards sin. Okay, Sure, we sin, right? That's okay. We're all sinners. We're all human. Should we try not to sin? Yeah, I mean, we, sh- we should try. But it's really hard not to sin, right? I mean, if, if, we, if we screw up, yeah, it's, it's a good thing we have Jesus. Right? I'll try to sin until it gets super hard. And then if I stop not sinning and I sin, I'm just glad we have Jesus. And we have this kind of general apathy towards sin where we view it like, hey, am I going to catch The Office tonight or is it already over? I'll just catch it on Netflix later. We have this, this lack of desire. And let me stress this, okay? This is very important. There's a great distinction between being confident of grace and being comfortable in grace, okay? There's a great distinction between confidence of grace and comfortability in grace. Confidence says, if I sin, I see that that deserved death. Praise be to God that Jesus took the severity of that one sin on the cross. Praise be to God that it's Jesus who died on the cross in my place so that I might live to sin no more. Comfort says, eh, it's no big deal. I'm really loved by Jesus. What can I do to screw it up? Jesus died for sin. I can sin. Sin bears, right? We'll jump ahead to Romans, uh, Romans 8. There's now therefore no condemnation. What can you bring against me? Jesus already did it. And what that does, it makes a mockery of grace. It mocks Jesus' sacrifice. It makes the cross a trinket. And Paul knows that. And so Paul is going to come to us, and he's challenging us right now. How do you think about sin in your life? How do you think about sin? And how does the gospel that you claim to believe shape the way you live? How does the ball you claim to have received compel you to make a play? And this is what um, we are going to see. He's going to give us three pieces of knowledge about our faith. The first thing Paul's going to stress is this. We need to have knowledge of faith's symbol. Knowledge of faith's symbol. 
Chapter 6, 1 verse 4, which is what Emily just read for us. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us, see that phrase, do you not know? He wants us to know something. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul gives this, this question, shall we go on sitting so that grace may increase? And he says, may it never be. And there's some phrases, I don't know why, but most preachers always say the phrase in Greek, and this is one of them. What, shall we go on sitting so that grace may abound? Meganoito! And they say that like you guys know what it means. But it's literally a double, it, it, it's, it's meganoito. No, never. Not never. Never. May it never be. Don't consider it. Put it away from your mind. And it's really interesting what Paul says here. Because Paul is pushing against a life which mocks the gospel, a life which slips back to what Paul says was a life of death. And where does he start? Where does he give you that footing if you've began to slip? Where's that footing that you may again regain your step? He points to baptism. He points to baptism. Jesus himself and the apostles in the book of Acts and in the gospels, they kind of proclaim a three-part response for salvation. They say repent, believe, and be baptized. Now we know those all aren't on even playing fields. Why? Does baptism save you? No. Why? Because what chapter are we starting in Romans? Chapter 6. What has he just done for the first five chapters? What saves you? Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith saves you. Faith saves you. Faith saves you. And yet, both Jesus and the apostles saw baptism as the first and earliest response to those who have been saved. So what he's doing is he's pointing to the most visible manifestation of that believer's identity. You see, baptism isn't a ritual, it's a symbol. It's a symbol of something which has been lost on people who are okay with sin. And Paul knows that. If you're one who says the gospel exists, I can live the way I want, I can't even find a comfortable level of sin. Right? Sure, it's not going to be up here, but if I can get by with this much sin in my life, a moderate, manageable amount, that's fine. And he's saying, if you know your baptism, you will not tolerate that. You see, when we baptize someone, we're making a statement of identity. It's a public confession of a salvation and the symbolism corresponds to the means in which you're saved. Baptism is both symbol and reality. It both does nothing, but it says everything at the exact same time. And look at what Paul says about your baptism, okay? Think of the motions that go into being baptized, and look at what he says here. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore into Christ, or we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, baptism means, and for those of us, we just had a baptism at church uh, at the uh, beginning of the summer, I think, um, and you see people go underwater, out of water, and that's symbolizing Christ's death 
burial, and resurrection, this coming up. Baptism means that you died to sin. That's the phrase he uses in verse 2. We died to sin as Christ died on the cross. And that's a really interesting phrase that we need to know. You died to sin. What does that mean? Think about it. What does it mean that you died to sin? Does it mean that you died because of sin? You died because of sin? Is that what it means? I mean, it's kind of true. Does it mean that you became desensitized to sin? Like my dead calloused skin has died to itself and you no longer feel sin. Well, that's not true because I claim to be saved and I sure feel sin in my life. Or does it mean that you died to the debt which was owed to your sin? You died to its curse. You died to its penalty. And that is what it means. That's the tone of the text. So here's this. In baptism, if you've been baptized, your baptism shows that it's not only Christ who died on that cross, but it's you. You died to the curse of sin. You owed a debt to sin and you paid it on the cross. You owed a penalty to sin and you owned up with Christ on the cross. And that means you're no longer counted under sin. You're no longer counted as unrighteous. And our baptism is the billboard in our life which screams, that's not who you are. You have died to sin. Why don't we sin? Because it stands in complete opposition to who we are as believers. Why would I not flirt even with a little with other girls in marriage? Because it's in complete opposition of who I am as a husband. The same applies to our sin. But more than simply pointing out what shouldn't be so, we shouldn't sin. May it never be. We have died to sin. Paul states something more in the positive sense. Romans 6.4 We're buried with him by, by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we also might walk in newness of life. You see, we have died to sin not only for the purpose of removing condemnation. The people who say, shall we go on singing so that grace may increase, that's all they get. Condemnation's removed. Live. If your view of the gospel is only a view of what you do, are free to do because you no longer have sin, that's a wrong view of the gospel. You see, the gospel is for sin, but it's not about sin. Jesus didn't die to destroy the curse of sin. End of story. He came so that he might destroy sin for the purpose of giving you newness of life. You see, this is where Paul begins to drift from the symbol in baptism to the source on the cross. This is point number two, where baptism is good and we must have knowledge of that. The second thing we need to have knowledge of is faith's source. We see this source, verses five through 11. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. I'm not gonna spend much time on that, um, but how was Jesus raised physically? bodily, how will we be raised one day? Not as spirits in heaven who can't touch and have wings and sit on clouds, but as real physical bodies. Physical creation was God's creation. And we're not trending away from it. He's redeeming us back to it. Verse six, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing 
so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And dominion um, in this, it's also actually the word, the root of the word is Lord. Death will not be his Lord for it has no lording over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So Paul is progressing his argument here. In case you didn't see this, this is how it goes, is that you have sinned, but in baptism, you are buried. And it's not merely a symbol, it's a symbol of a reality of you being buried with Christ. But not only were you buried with Christ, we've never once had a baptism at church where we don't bring somebody back up. Okay, that's bad PR for the baptism campaign. But what happens? They come up. Not just because you need to breathe, but because you have new life. You have a new life in baptism. You see, being dead to sin is great. Hallelujah. But being alive in Christ is even better. God hasn't purchased an army of zombies. He's purchased an army of people who are active worshipers of him. And in this passage, this is really important to help us understand what has happened at the source. What's happened at the source of our salvation, we need to look at the three deaths that happen in this passage. There are three deaths, and each of those deaths accomplishes something. We see the first death. The first death is the obvious death. It's the death of Jesus. But what did the death of Jesus accomplish? Look at verses 9 through 10. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has lordship over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So what did Jesus' death do? He died to pay our debt. There we see that phrase in verse 2, we died to sin. In verse 9, Christ died to sin in our place. He died not as an accident. He died not at the hands of angry men that God sought then to redeem. He died because that was what he was sent to do. He died to appease God's wrath so that we might have life and his death paid for our death. Holy, completely, invaluably, infinitely. But his resurrection from the grave showed us that he will live forever and ever and ever. You see, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but what did he do? He died. Jesus was raised from the dead. What's he never going to do? Never going to die. You see, the life we have in Jesus is different than the life we have on this earth because while we have new life on this earth, we have eternal life in eternity. And here's the thing. It's not life untethered. It's not life left to the world. What is your life? To do what I want, when I want, where I want. That's not what it's purchased for. Look at verse 10. The very last uh, six words, eight words. (laughs) The life he lives, he lives to God. Your life as a believer is based on the life of Christ, which is tied to life towards God. And let me tell you this. If the second person of the Trinity lives towards God and finds great satisfaction in it, 
how much more will we find satisfaction in living a life towards God, directed towards God, in the service of God? See, here's the beautiful thing about what Jesus did. In the gospel, we see Jesus' great and amazing love for us, right? Greater love has none other than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to die for us. The gospel is about love for us, but what did Jesus do? How does the Bible speak of the gospel? It says Jesus came on account of sin. Jesus came because he loved people. But why did Jesus come chiefly? So that he might, having accomplished salvation, live to serve and glorify God in a greater capacity. Death no longer has dominion, and the life he has, he lives to God. That's pretty big. Jesus accomplished our salvation. If anyone's entitled to live for himself, it's Jesus. <laughs> but he's living it towards God. Then we see the second death. As I said, Jesus did not simply die only for the glory of God. He died chiefly for it, but is also compelled by a great love he has for us. He died for believers. We see the, the believer's death and what it accomplished in verse 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. You see, what happens when we died in Christ? Okay, we could all put dates on our tombstone right around 4 AD. Okay, that's when we died. If you're in Christ, you've already died. You died in Jesus. Your old self died. That's a phrase that uses this weird kind of biblical phrase. Why should we not go back to a life of sin? Why should we not desire a comfortable level of sin? Because the man who was a sinner, the Tyler who was a sinner, the Andrea who was a sinner died. It's not that part of me died, the part that desired sin died. The whole of me who stood condemned died. The whole of me who desired sin, who desired trash, who desired slavery, who desired pain, he died with Jesus. That desire has died as the whole of my unrepentant self died. That we may be, again we see the positive purpose, free from sin. It died not to make us neutral. It died not simply to remove the curse. It died to bring us freedom. And let me tell you this. So uh, dwindling numbers here, that's great. It happens this time of the year. This next sermon is the reason why I wanted to preach through Romans. Next week's sermon, we look at what freedom means. You know what college students want? Freedom. You know what college students have zero idea about? Freedom. Because the world is only free in Jesus Christ. And we are so led astray by the false gods which promise freedom, but only enslave. So I might have built too big of an uh, expectation for next week, but come next week and bring your friends, okay? Um, we talk about freedom in depth next week, but I'm going to address it quickly today. When our old self died with Christ, we were freed from slavery. Why would you want to go back? Why? Why would you want to live in the filth? Why would you want to live in the pain? Why would you want to live in the judgment, in the damnation? You have been set free for the purpose of living as one who is free. Christ freed us. We live then as free people. And so here's the thing. We have a new ability in our freedom. When we were in our old self, when it was our old self that was our only self, 
We lived in what theologians, the, theologians, wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable, um, what theologians called, here's more Latin. You had Greek, now here's your Latin. Non posse, non picare. Is any Latin people in here know what that means? Not able not to sin. In your old self, you were not able to do anything but sin. You ate, drank, and slept sin. You breathed sin. Why? Because sin is less of an action and it's a belief. You rejected God. You forsook the, the, you exchanged the truth for lies. That's what Romans 1 opened up with. Everything you did was wrapped up in sin. All we did, in the words of that one guy who I don't know, all you did was sin, 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 no matter what, what, what. That was your life prior to Jesus. But in Christ, because your old self has died, not part of you, the whole of who you once were, were for the first time posse non peccare, able not to sin. Able not to sin. How many of you guys have been asked the question, it's often what uh, like cheesy Christian groups like us do because we don't assume you guys know how to talk to each other, so we give you like mixer questions. And we're like, if you could have any superhero power, what would it be? And we all think about this. How do you envision yourself interacting with that power? If you wish to be fast, don't you imagine yourself running fast? If you wish to have strength, don't you imagine a scenario where you use that strength? If you wish to fly, do you not imagine yourself flying even to the highest of heights? Why then would those of us who have the ability to not sin seek to return to sinning? If we have an ability we have never had before, will we not seek to exercise that every moment of every day to the furthest of our capacities? Would it not compel us to wage war in newfound strength? Because to live in Christ is not to say you have no ability to sin. It's to say Christ had an ability not to sin. He never sinned. He won't sin. And his life is your life. You have a unique, innate ability found nowhere else on the face of the world. You can say no to sin. So use it. To abuse grace as a Christian should not look like we allow sin. To abuse grace as a Christian means we're so vigilant with grace, we give sin so many body blows it's awkward for people to be around. <laughs> we're vigilant towards it. And this brings us to the last death we see tonight. Why are we able to resist sin? Because the third death in this passage is the death of death itself. We see that in Romans 6. Listen to the words. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Also, verse 9 says this, We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion. Death no longer has lordship over him. You see, in Christ, death came to die. On the cross, Christ brought death to nothing. He brought sin to non-existence. You see, on the cross, Jesus removed the bite of sin. And while death may have taken our Christ for three days, it is Christ who has taken death for all eternity. You see, death, sin, and all it stood for thought it had claimed a decisive victory on the cross. But on that very moment, 
on those wooden bloodied cross beams. As death cried out, it is finished. It sealed its own fate. For Jesus would come back from the dead. Death, the only thing that has contained human history. Death, the only normative for anyone who has ever lived. Death, the last enemy was destroyed in Jesus because death couldn't hold him. And one day, death will not hold those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians gives us hope, but also a sober mind as we view this. The promise of Christ destroying death eternally. Chapter 15, verse 24, then comes the end. What a beautiful day that will be when he delivers the kingdom to God. That's a sermon in itself. What is God delivering? Not a minority, not an outcropping, not outsiders, not pariahs, but a kingdom, his people, to God. And after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. You see, one day, in a day past, Jesus destroyed death. A day in the future, he will remove it altogether but this is where we live. We live on this side of 1 Corinthians 15. We live in a world where death has been defeated yet not entirely destroyed. More importantly, we live in a world where sin has been rendered harmless in regards to its bite, but not its bark. Sin has no power. Sin holds no sway. Sin has no punishment, but it's loud and it talks a lot. This is why Paul concludes this message with this. So you must also consider yourself. What is the task of the believer? To consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul is being mathematical here. You once died to sin, now you are alive to God in Jesus Christ You see, we're not yet sinless. We're not. 1 John 3, 2 says this. It says, what you will be has not yet appeared. But when he appears, in that glorious day, post 1 Corinthians 15, 26, you will be like him, for you shall see him as he is. Man, there's going to be a day where the twinge of sin, the desire of our wicked heart, will not only have the ability to be repressed, but it will be removed altogether. Where for the first time as God's people, we're able to not sin for all eternity. And that will be a beautiful day. There will be a day where it takes no effort to resist sin, but in this station of life, we've caught the ball and we need to play the game. We need to finish the play. We need to do the work. While we are not yet sinless, we must remind ourselves of the ability to be free from sin, and we must consider daily 
ourselves dead to sin and alive in Jesus. Not only alive to Jesus, not only dead to sin, but dead to sin and alive in Christ, for that is what we are. And this is the last thing Paul wants us to know. This is knowledge of faith's fight. This is the fight. What will you spend the rest of your life doing? Glorifying God by waging war against sin. To know what you have been declared in Christ is to commit yourself to live according to your new life. To be declared righteous is to seek to live as one who is righteous. To be given grace is to live as one who has received that grace. To be granted freedom is to live as one who is free. To be given salvation is to live as one who has been saved. And this is the fight. Verses 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign. Already we see that's at odds with what we know. Sin has no lordship. Who rules? Lord's rule. Sin has no lordship. Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. We're going to look more at that next week. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. There is a really big underlying assumption to that text we just read. This is that assumption. This is the reality of the Christian faith. You are being used as a tool in some way, shape, or form. You are an instrument, and there are two options. You are either an instrument for evil and unrighteousness, or you are an instrument of righteousness and the glory of God. Think about that. When you look at your life, what do you see? You see, the way in which you approach this command to not let sin reign in your mortal body is not to an individual, isolated indifferent matter because it's not an individual matter. See, we can all say, well, I can do this because I know this is where I draw my line. The Bible might draw the line a little farther back. The Bible might be gray on the lines, but I know I can get up to this point. But here's the thing. Instruments are used for the cause of greater good. Instruments are corporate tools you live not only on your own, but you live in the presence of others, other Christians who might be led to sin or other sinners who might see that the gospel really bears no impact on your life. And every decision you make, every thought you have affirms or denies the kind of instrument you will be, an instrument to unrighteousness or an instrument to sin. Therefore, we wage war against sin because we know the truth of Romans 6:14 that sin will have no dominion over us look at that line again it's not up there it's in your bibles for sin will have no dominion over you there are two ways to view this i think we must view it both ways first is a commitment from us paul's talking to you and he's saying you will not live as one mastered by another when you have been so championed by God. You will not bow knee to culture. You will not bow knee to pride. You will not bow knee to sin when it's Christ who sits on the throne and not the world. 
You will not be so foolish to think you can add beauty to grace by living in sin. Because you will realize that there is nothing more beautiful than the grace of Jesus on the cross. You can't add beauty to it, and you will certainly not add beauty to it through your sin. Forgiveness screams the glory of God. A lifestyle dependent on forgiveness and a scandal of grace will not give glory to God. You see, the gospel is already the most beautiful statement about God. And when we embody it, and when we live it, and we say with Paul, sin will not be our master, it also becomes the most glorious statement about ourselves. And we say, this is where it ends. This is where it stops. Meganoito. Not now, not never, not in the future. Not ever will sin be my master, for I have a different master. And I will live, I will strive, I will fight, I will scratch, and I will claw to live in the freedom which Christ's blood has so purchased for our glory. And Paul says to you, to you in here right now, consider this. Consider this when no one's around. Consider this when sin seems attractive. Consider this when all your friends are doing otherwise. Consider this when culture screams in your face. Consider this when persecution comes your way. Consider this when the values of the world seem stronger than the beauty of Christ. Consider this when you are weak. Consider this when you are lonely. Consider this when you are on your knees and Christ will be good for you for you will have no other master but Christ. But there's also a commitment from God for those who truly believe, God is saying, sin will not be your master, for I have purchased you, and I am your God, and you cannot serve two masters. You see, if you have true faith, if you have claimed salvation by faith alone, you will ultimately endure because God will see to it. For those who are mastered by Jesus, you will show, though sometimes in weakness and hardship, an unrivaled commitment to serve God over sin. Here's a litmus test of your faith. You will be different than the world. Think about your life right now. If everything you knew about Christianity disappeared from your mind, how different would your life look? How different would your time be? How different would your hobbies be? How different would your friends be? How different would your relationships be? How different would your language be? Friends, if there will be little difference if Christianity disappears from your life, I doubt if you know the Christianity that saved us. I doubt that you know the Jesus who came to kill sin and set us free for something more. You are an instrument, not only for your own growth, but for the global church of Jesus Christ. So Paul in this is hard work. This is hard work. And it only gets harder because we find more ways to sin as we get older. But Paul gives us in this text four ways we can try to be an instrument of good. Four ways which we can uh, practice being a tool for righteousness. The first is this, be baptized. Be baptized. Baptism is the wedding ring of the believer. 
It reminds you and reminds everyone else publicly of who you are because of where your affection lies, who you are because of what you've been saved to. While it doesn't accomplish your faith, it reminds you daily of the new reality you are in Christ Jesus. It says, when sin comes my way, I look back at the wedding ring of my faith and say, I went under that water as Christ went into that grave and I came out in the same way Christ came out. That's true and that's good. If you've never been baptized in here and you believe in Jesus Christ, we want to do that to you. That sounds weird. We want to do that with you. Um, We want to help you understand what that means and we want to give you guys that security. That's the first thing Paul appealed to for people who are tending to live in sin is consider your baptism. Consider the wedding ring of faith. We want to walk through that process with you. Talk to me, talk to Jordan, talk to uh, your, your D group leader. That's the first thing, be baptized. Secondly, be realistic. Sin has no power over you. Sin has no power over you. When you feel, that means when you feel tempted by sin, you're not being tempted by sin, you're being tempted by your own heart. Who controls your heart? What is our, is our heart in slavery or, fear, or freedom? Freedom, who controls our heart? We do, we're free. We were once controlled by our heart. Now we're free in our heart. And when we're tempted, we say, I don't need this. I don't need this. Christ has freed me. We have the ability to stand up to our hearts because Christ has redeemed not only our souls, but also our affections. And Christ has defeated everything. And all sin is overcomable because Christ has destroyed it. All sin, every sin, in all places, you can resist. You can endure. You can choose not to sin. Be realistic about it. Know your ability. Daydream about killing sin rather than jumping over buildings. Uh, Thirdly, be hostile. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. Jesus goes as far to say, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better than part of your body to, to go into the trash than for the rest of your body to go to hell. You cannot be passive in the fight against sin. You cannot assume sin will manifest itself and say, hey, you should deal with me. Sin is subtle. Sin is sneaky. Look at your life right now. Each and every one of if, if I say, where's the chief area you sin, you know exactly where that is. If someone else asks you, it's the one uh, above the one you tell them. <laughs> no one ever says, the chief way I sin is this because it's too embarrassing in all of our lives. And we hide sin. Uh, chief sin is that I'm too honest and I love people too much. Chief sin is that I fear man. Our chief sin is bad. So look in your life. If you're going to be hostile towards sin, find the outlet, find the source, cut it off. Pray that Jesus continues to change your heart, but in the meantime, man, put padlocks on the ways in which you sin. Maybe that means not hanging out with certain friends. Maybe that means not going certain places. Maybe that means having specific hours on specific devices that you have. But it means you're hostile towards it. John Owen, uh, his famous line, be killing sin or sin will kill you. One of you is going to die. Is it going to be you or is it going to be the one that's already died in Christ Jesus? Lastly, be dedicated. Be hostile towards sin. Be dedicated to God. Listen to this. You cannot, you cannot fight sin without being dedicated to God. To fight sin is nothing but chasing the wind if you are not, on the other hand, committed to serving Christ with the whole of your life. It won't work. It's like you're trying to 
It's like you're digging a hole in a watery uh, sand, like on the beach, and you're digging a hole, and the water just keeps coming up. And you're digging, and you're digging. You need to fill it with something. How do you keep sin out of your life? You don't create a vacuum. You fill a vacuum. And Jesus has given us much to be filled with. In fact, he's filled us with himself. And when you view your life, do you view it as something offered to God, poured out to God, a grain offering to God, dedicated to God, Godward in trajectory? If not, you probably struggle with sin, don't you? I know I do. And I know that typically my propensity to sin comes not when I focus on sin. It comes when I don't focus on God. It comes when I see my life as outside of what God has purchased me for. I will say that the easiest way to see sin and to disarm it is less to focus on sin and more to focus on Christ. Because when we see the beauty of Jesus, we are repulsed by our sin. And we want to fight it. And we want to kill it. And we want to call out to it, you're already dead in Christ Jesus. My prayer is that this passage defines GCF. I pray that this is distinct for us as believers. I pray that we finish the play. We've caught the ball. We fight the fight. We strive, we labor, and we rest. Let's pray.